All right, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. And we're going to pick it up where we left off at. Here in verse 15, uh, you know, Paul previously was talking that Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us because the scripture says that cursed is everyone who hangeth on a tree. And then he went on to talk about the blessing of Abraham, that it might come unto the Gentiles through faith because of what Jesus Christ has done. So then he says here in verse 15, brethren, he says, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. So the covenant that God made with Abraham is a blessing. He says, in blessing, I will bless thee in Genesis twenty-two seventeen. The promise that God made to Abraham was upon his children, if you go back and read that. And so you now, through faith in Jesus Christ, have become the children of Abraham, you know, all those who believe by faith. Thus, he's the father of all those who believe. So the promise of, 20, of Genesis twenty-two seventeen applies to you too, if you're Abraham's seed. So, and I'm thankful for that, you know, because I rely on it. And I think that as Christians, we need to just expect it. Just expect God to bless you. And, and, and so often people don't, but, you know, we have that through Abraham. He says, in blessing, I will bless you and multiply you. It's, it's all because of what Jesus has done. Jesus is the one who opens the door of blessing that you might be blessed just as Abraham was blessed. So, of course, it's by faith in Christ. So the covenant that God made was made with a man that is with Abraham, yet once God confirmed it, no man is able to take away from it or to add to it, he says. So Paul said here in verse 16, he says, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. You remember back in verse 8, Paul wrote that God said, in thee all the nations shall be blessed. Now this declaration that God made about this blessing is interesting to me in that the Jewish nation and Jews in general tend to believe that this particular promise is a reference to the blessing that God declared over the nation of Israel as a whole in a physical sense. And I do believe when you look at the evidence that there's some merit to it. Now, they believe that they were to be the benefactors, if you will, to the blessings of the whole world. They, they, they really believe that. And to a point, like I said, I believe it's true. All you have to do is look at the list of Nobel Prize winners and look at the disproportionate amount of Jewish people in areas of science and medicine and physics and you name it Look at the disproportionate, you know, how much the Jews have actually blessed. And not just in that, you know, Paul talking about the Word of God in general. And you think of how much the Bible, that book you're holding, you know, it's not just a sacred book. It is the only sacred book. Many call other books sacred, but there's only one true Word of God. And you're holding it. You're looking at it. You're studying it tonight. Paul the Apostle said, what profit is there then 
in being a Jew. And he's talking about physically because we do know that there are Jews who are Jews spiritually, those who are of faith. You know, it's a, you know who's, who, who's truly a Jew? Well, he's who is one by faith. But there are physical Jews, those of us who have Jewish blood. Paul says, what profit is it? If we're all just Christians, but what profit is there to being a Jew? And he says, much in every way. For unto them was given the oracles of God. We have the Bible sitting in front of us today because it was given to the Jews. This isn't in my notes. I'm going to give it to you for free. The preservation of the Bible, the preservation of the manuscripts, the Word of God, is extremely important. Uh, and most people really don't put enough time into realizing how much of a miracle that book you have today really is, how accurate it is, you know. Textual criticism is what it's called in theology, the study of how we kept these and what God has done with them. But the Jews, the reason God used them is because they really believed in their heart and still do to this day that the Word of God is exactly that. It's really the Word of God. Today, even in synagogues all over the world, they have a copy of the Torah, the first, the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, and they're on scrolls. They don't use printed form as we do, although some smaller Jewish congregations might, but most of them do not. They actually pay a scribe to handwrite the entire Old Testament. And the beauty of the way that the Jews have always done it is that as they have written the entire word of God, and keep this in mind, God gave a commandment to every king of Israel that once he ascended to the throne, he himself was to write a copy. Now imagine that. He was to write his own copy of the Word of God. That's why I love people who take notes. I'm a note taker myself. Why? Because as I write it, I'm not just putting it on paper. I'm, in, I'm embedding it in my mind and in my heart. There's something about rewriting it. You know what I mean? There's something about hearing and then rewriting it verbatim that just solidifies it in our soul. And so God told every king of Israel, you, you will make a copy of the law and keep it. But when the scribes would make their copies, let's say they've got almost all the way to the end, which is a lot of writing. And let's say it was absolutely perfect. And then they got right down to the end and they went, oops. <laughs> they didn't use whiteout because there was no such thing. They didn't try to rub the mark out. They didn't try to scratch it out and just correct it. They rolled it up and they burned it. Why? Because they believed that what they were copying was the exact words of God and they wanted no corruption to enter in. That's why the Hebrew text, my friends, is the most accurate of the Hebrew text of the Old Testament. That's why we go by it. But it's important that we understand how God kept his word, preserved his word, and how the Jews have been the benefactor in that regards, as far as the word of God is concerned, which kind of blows me away that the issue of anti-Semitism is so prevalent and always has been in the world. You know, in the book of Ezekiel, if you ever want to read some interesting prophecy, read 36, 37, 38, and 39, and, and think about what's going on in the world today. Uh, time is short, my friends. 
But God said that they would be hated of all nations. And they are. And in a lot of times, like when you read what went on during World War II, okay, during the prior to the Holocaust, and how Nazi Germany had signed a concordat, an agreement with the Catholic Church, knowing that the Nazis were anti-Semitic, but everybody was, even though they were blessed with the blessing of Abraham because of what God had promised to him and because they were believers in Jesus Christ. They were recipients of that, and yet many to this day, even though the recipients of that are still anti-Semitic, which is sad, really. What's the profit in being a Jew, Paul said? Much in every way, for unto them were given the oracles of God. And so because of them, to this day, we are blessed. But that's not really what Paul's talking about here. When he's talking about the blessing of Abraham, he's talking about the lineage of Abraham. And he says, unto thy seed, which is one, singular, which is Christ. And it's because of Jesus Christ that all the world has been blessed. Because of him and what he has done, he said, thus it is through the Messiah that the blessings were to come upon the Gentiles and really the whole world uh, as a whole. Look at verse 17. He says, and this I say that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that should, excuse me, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So Paul said earlier, cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Now, all means what? All. Means all. So the law came along and condemned man to death. That's all it does has no ability to save. It has no ability to make you righteous. It only condemns. However, God had promised the blessing upon Abraham's seed that is pointing to Christ and to those who believe or who walk in faith. So Paul stated here that the law cannot take away those blessings that God had promised to Abraham, which actually is to you now if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. So nor can it disannul it because of your failure or because of your lack of obedience to the law. God has declared a blessing. And that blessing still stands. Nothing can, can do away with it. Now here's a concept I'll give you that if you can get your fingers around it, if you can get your heart to embrace it, you can. And, and, and your, in your life, I guarantee you, will be so much better off and more fuller in the blessings of God if you can simply get your hands around it. Once we understand that God simply wants to bless you, not because of your obedience, not because you do everything right, because you know that ain't true. You know. Listen, we can fool everybody around us, right? Listen, here's what I always tell people. And if you're listening by radio, listen to me carefully. You can fool me. You can fool the person sitting in the pew next to you or in the car next to you. But who you are, when you're all by yourself and there's nobody around but you and the Lord and your conscience, that's who you really are. And you know it and I know it. 
And I thank God for it because God isn't blessing me according to who I really am. He's blessing me according to who Jesus really is. And if you're in Christ, then the blessing of Abraham comes upon you because of your faith in Jesus. Thus the scripture tells us, as he is, so are we in this present world. God deals with me as a son, as Paul's going to say now. And that relationship I have, I don't know about you, but I love my kids. I do. Even when they're screwing up. And we've seen them do it. But I still love them. I can't help it, but you know, my son, I've only got one son. I've got lots of daughters and lots of granddaughters and, and one grandson. Two grandsons now, so one brand new one. I'm so used to saying just, well, i got a brand new grandson. But we love them unconditionally. Now, we want to see them do what's right, but we love them. And God loves us according to sonship. As I repented when I put my faith in Christ, changed my mind and believed in Jesus, I became a son of Abraham, as you did, through faith. And so this covenant that God made with Abraham's children really becomes the covenant with me and with you. It's a personal thing. And so often we don't see it that way, but we need to see it that way. You know, one of the things I love, people ask me sometimes, you know, what, what, you know if I want to read through the Bible, Doug, where should I start? Start in the Gospel of John, please. By all means, start in the Gospel of John. I've had people say, well, I want to start in Genesis, and I'm reading through. I said, man, don't, don't mess yourself up like that. I'm telling you now. Because until you get a grip on the Gospel, you'll never understand the Old Testament. Listen to me. Start in the Gospel of John. Why? Because we, we don't call it the love Gospel for nothing. And one of the things that I love about the beauty of the Gospel of John is John wrote it from the perspective. He even uses a, a term for himself. He says, I, you know, that disciple whom Jesus loved. And I used to tell everybody, and when I was pastoring Calvary Chapel, Zanesville, there was, for a time there, they were running around, they had t-shirts made, it said, I'm his favorite. Because I told them, I said, you ought to walk in your walk as though you're the favorite of God. Because you really are. Jesus blesses us, God blesses us according to what he's done. And John saw it that way. John was the youngest, he, but he was also the you know, just to make sure that you understand, he was the youngest. When we hold our Passover next year, and we're, and we're going to, and we're going to do it right. <laughs> I love Passover because we always try to find the youngest guy to do the four questions because the youngest, you know, a male is, is to ask the four questions. And so Jesus, think about this. You know, Jesus being a good Jewish boy, went through 33 of those. And from the time he was old enough to speak, he would have been the one asking the four questions. Why do we only eat matzah this night? Why do we only dip in bitter herbs? Why, you know, and, and, and he did that. But at the same time, he knew that everything that was in that Passover pointed to him. He knew it was about him. He knew what he came to do. And he was willing to do it because he desperately, the Bible says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the shame and went to the cross willingly so he could reconcile you back to God, that we might wind up with the loving relationship that Adam had with God in the beginning. That's why Paul calls Jesus the second Adam. The first Adam screwed it up. He drove that wedge between us and God. But the second Adam, 
Jesus Christ. You know, when you think about last week, we talked a little bit about the vicariousness of Jesus and how we live our life through him now. You know, or more accurately, he lives his life through us. But we receive vicariously from him everything that he is and everything that he's done. But that's how you became a sinner. A lot of people have this backward. They think that sinning makes you a sinner. Not so. You're a sinner because of what you were born. You were born into it. Why? Because your great, 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 great granddaddy is Adam. And because Adam was a sinner, so are you vicariously. And remember when we went through Hebrews, Paul said, even though we did not sin after the manner of Adam, yet because we're his progeny, we are sinners. And so we became sinners even though I didn't ask to be one, even though I didn't want to be one. I am one because I'm born one. But in the same token, Paul says, vicariously through faith in Christ, we're made righteous. And I love that. So he says, by the sin of one man, all became sinners, and death passed upon all men because all were sinners. In the same token, he says, the righteousness, all were made righteous by the righteousness of one man, which is Jesus Christ. So this seed of Abraham, this one who is Jesus Christ, has passed this blessing of everything that you can imagine upon us by faith alone. The law can't take it away even though the law was added 430 years after the promise was given, Paul says, it cannot disannul. Thus, this covenant of blessing that we have in Jesus Christ is secure. It isn't going anywhere. You can rest in it. You can bank on it, if you will. But we need to live in expectation. You know, I'll throw this one more at you, and then we'll, we'll continue. In James, he says, you have not because you ask not. You ask sometimes and have not because you ask amiss that you might consume it upon your lust. But when you ask, he says, ask believing that you receive. You, you have to. He says, for if a man does not believe that he's going to receive, let him not think that he shall receive anything from the Lord. So one thing I learned from Pastor Chuck that I've always appreciated was Pastor Chuck just expected God to bless him, not because he was worthy of it, not because he deserved it, but because he knew the nature of God. And so, expect it. I love resting in Jesus. I love resting in the fact that God blesses me in spite of me. Because if I was God, I'd have killed me a long time ago. I don't know about you. Look at verse 19. He says, wherefore, when, wherefore serveth the law then? He says, it was added because of transgression till the seed that is Jesus, should come to whom the promise was made. It was ordained by the angels in the hands of a mediator. So the law served because of man's transgressions, Paul says. That is to show man's guilt and his need for a savior. That's all the law does. Now a mediator is not the mediator of one, but God is one. It takes two for mediation. I don't know whether I remember one time uh, years ago I was uh, working at Iowa State Maximum Security Prison. I was uh, working in corrections at that time. And the union that I was in got into a dispute with the people that, you know, that, that paid our checks. And the dispute was pretty heated to where they were threatening strikes, you know, that kind of stuff. And so in order to get past the impasse 
the fact that we couldn't come to agreement, they hired a mediator. That is, we had an argument between two people, and they brought in somebody who had no dog in the fight to listen to both sides, you see. Well, this is kind of what Jesus does for us. You know, so often in Christendom, especially old Christendom, and I'm talking Roman Catholicism, they look at the Pope. Matter of fact, the word, how many of you know that the word Pope means bridge builder? How many of you knew that? Just a couple. That's what it means. Bridge builder to whom? Well, they believe between God and man. But the Bible says that there is only one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. I'm thankful that I don't have to go into a little box and confess my sins to anybody. I'm glad that I don't have to call upon somebody with a collar or a robe or whatever that thing might be to sit and listen to me whine. I'm so thankful that I can just whine to Jesus and I can just pour out my heart upon him. I, I saw a thing on Facebook the other day I thought was so appropriate. I thought, wow, that really, there's me. That's me. It showed a picture, and I don't know the guy's name who played in The Passion of the Christ. Do you remember The Passion of the Christ? Whatever his name was, who played Jesus. He's sitting there, and it's got Mel Brooks, the director, was sitting next to him. And of course, he's in full costume. Of course, and it's the crucifixion part where he was beaten. So he's sitting in this chair, and he just looks bloody. He's got a crazy, you know, he looks like he was crucified. But he's talking to the director. And somebody put that picture up because obviously they snapped it and those two didn't know that they were being photographed. <laughs> but over top of it, I thought, oh man, that's me. <laughs> said, this is me. This is me pouring out my heart to Jesus. <laughs> you know, my bad times. I'm going, yeah, isn't that the truth? You know, anything that we think we're going through, <laughs> that's what it probably looks like. When we compare what we have gone through to the suffering of Christ, Oh, my lands gang, we are so, so blessed, you know, that we have not even ventured to suffer like our Lord and Savior suffered for you, for me. Jesus is the mediator between God and man. We had a problem. We needed somebody to fix it. Adam drove the wedge, that wedge of sin, that wall. You know, we're told in the Old Testament, your sins have separated you from your God that he cannot hear you. You know, people sit and tell me, well, God hears all prayers. Oh, contraire. That ain't Bible. No, 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 no. You know, it's kind of like an old telephone. Some of us who are older, we remember back when you had to actually dial. Remember those? And they actually had a thing called a payphone, kids. That when you didn't, because you, you didn't carry them around in your pocket back then, you know, you had to pull out a, a dime, which is telling them really how old I am. You put a dime in, and you hear the ding, and then you got to start dialing. You know, you, I used to tell people, Jesus is like that dime. You can pick that phone up, and you can scream into the receiver all you want, and there's nobody going to answer until you put the coin in, and you dial a number, and then you make the connection. Paul's going to eventually go on to tell these Galatians who were trying to be reconciled or trying to be 
in the favor of God by the works of the law. He's going to say, look, those of you who think that you're saved by the law, you have fallen from grace. Christ is of no effect to you. Those of you whosoever are justified by the law. It is only in Christ that that avenue of communication is opened up. And not only is it opened up, gang, but Paul tells us that after we're in Christ, we come boldly unto the throne of grace. Not because of my obedience, not because of my worthiness, not because of anything that I've done, but because of his goodness, his grace, his mercy, and his love that he has for each and every one of us. I'm so thankful for that, and I hope that you are too. Look at verse 21. He says, is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, very righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all of us are under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. Now think about that one for a moment. Once again, not in my notes, but I'm just pointing it out to you. You notice here, he says, but the scripture hath concluded that we're all under sin. For all of sin, remember Romans? All sin comes toward the glory. He said that the promise by faith of Jesus, you see that? Not in Jesus. Some of your Bibles might say in Jesus, but really according to the Texas Receptus, it should say of. By the faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. Oh, man. <laughs> that ought to, if that doesn't light your, your candle, your wick's wet. Okay? Listen to me. The Bible says to every man is given the measure of faith. Where's that faith come from? Jesus Christ. He is the initiator of all things. We don't initiate, we receive. We're receivers. But God is the initiator. You know, remember the, in the gospel, I can't wait till we get there, but it'll be a while before we do. But remember the man when Jesus said, do you believe? He said, Lord, help my unbelief. I was talking with a young lady the other day, and she says, I struggle in my faith. I says, then ask the Lord who gives to every man liberally and upbraids not. Lord, help my unbelief. You know, and the faith, God gives us that. He wants us to be saved and even gives us the means by which we are to be saved. No man can come to, Christ, to God except Christ draw him, you know, that, or the Spirit draw him. This is what Jesus said. But the scripture has concluded, he said, that all are under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, that is before Christ came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith which is, should afterward be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. Man, so before Jesus came, that relationship that man had with God was by law. That was the relationship. That is, that's how man was seeking to have favor with him. God never intended it that way, as we talked about it last time. They, before the law was given, they, they enjoyed the grace of God. They were under the grace of God. But boy, once they got it, that, that, that all changed. Man had then afterward to, to bring sacrifices in order to have a covering. And in the Hebrew, that word is kofar. They had to be covered, you know. So, after Jesus came, though, the law was no longer needed because Christ fulfilled it. Now, just as a side note, because the 
emphasis, a little history lesson, Martin Luther, the great reformer. Because of his insistence upon the grace of God, there arose at that time during the Reformation when, when it was kind of chaotic within the Protestant Reformation, there arose this doctrinal position which we call antinomianism. And antinomianism is defined as relating to the view that Christians are released by grace from the obligation of observing the moral law. Now, Martin Luther rejected this position and went on to develop 258 theses during six antinomianism dis, uh, disputations that he wrote, which the Lutheran church today, this, today goes by. Now, Luther went on the tack of antinomianism, those who believed that they were no longer under the law, the moral law, because he was accused of rejecting the moral law during church history. They accused him of this. The problem is that those who made the accusation were those who railed against salvation by grace alone anyway. I would contend that their problem was being Gentiles. In all of his writings, the Apostle Paul makes no distinction in his writings between moral law or ceremonial law. In reality, in Christendom, they make all kinds of distinctions. You have moral law, you have ceremonial law, you have natural law, you have dietetic laws. But no Jew makes any distinction. They believe that every law is moral. That all of it not just the Ten Commandments. And keep it in mind, gang, when most people think of the, of the law as Gentiles, they think of the Ten Commandments. Not so. Every rabbi believes that the entire law, all 613 rules and regulations, are the law. Thus, in the book of James, he says, if you stumble in one part of the law, you stumble in it all. He makes no distinction between what is moral or what is uh, ceremonial. There's no distinction. Got in this discussion, me and my wife was actually having this discussion this morning, and I pulled up one of my favorite teachers, R.C. Sproul, who's home with the Lord now. And I listened to his dissertation on the difference between law and antinomianism. And I knew what he was going to say because I've heard him say it before, because why? He's a Gentile. And what did he say? He says, well, he started off his dissertation by saying every Jew believes that all law is moral law and that all of it has to be kept. Absolutely. Because the oracles of God were given to the Jews, I would probably listen to what they had to say on that part of it. But because Martin Luther was a Gentile and because Martin Luther was anti-Semitic, he hated Jews with a passion. Does that mean God didn't use him? No, quite the opposite. It means God used him anyway. Why? Because 
imperfect vessels is all God has to work with, and that includes you and me. But because he had this position, even if Martin Luther had ran into a rabbi who was also messianic, who believed in Jesus, he wouldn't have listened to him. So because of the Reformation, because they were being accused of saying, well, you're under grace, there were some people who came to the wrong conclusion that, woohoo, we're under grace, so let the orgies begin. And there has been many, many sects during Christendom that have cropped up, gang, that have taught that wicked heresy. Paul the Apostle would say, though, how shall we who are dead to sin live any longer therein? See, here's what the Reformers missed. While these were great men of God, they would have gained some knowledge if they would have just thought about it from a Jewish perspective. There is no differentiation in the Jewish culture between ceremonial law and moral law. It's all law. There aren't just 10 commandments. There's 613 of them. Had he realized that what we live in Christ, we live by the Spirit of Christ. We live by the Spirit, which Paul's going to say was given to us, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And that as a person comes into that personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you're coming into a Spirit-led relationship with Christ. And because you're now led by the Spirit, the things of the Spirit are what become attractive to us. We're no longer under the law. We don't have a rule and regulation that tells me what to and not to do. I don't need it. Why? Because I'm now being led by the Spirit. And the Spirit of Christ is now leading me. Jesus even said, when the Spirit has come, He will lead you into all truth. And so we still have the Word of God, but the Word of God isn't about laws and it isn't about rules and regulations. It's about walking and living your life in the Spirit. And that's why our relationship with Christ is so important that we nurture that in a spiritual sense because it tends to point me to the things that are right. doesn't mean that a Christian won't sin. And as I've told you before, listen, any Christian can fall into a pig pen. Any Christian. But only a pig is at home in it. A Christian will never be at home in sin. Even though he might do it, he'll never be at home in it. Why? Because if he's genuinely born again, the Spirit of God is going to burn in his heart and he's going to say, man, I've got to get out of this. I repent. I, I've got to get out of this. What happened to, remember the, the prodigal? He found himself as a Jewish man feeding hogs. And I can't tell you how detrimental that would have been to a Jew. And to the point where not only was he touching that which is considered filthy, but he was even considering eating the garbage that they were eating. And then he come to his senses and he said, I will return to my father, but I'm not worthy to be called his son. So I'm going to go back and say, Father, I'll just beg you, let me be a slave. Let me be as one of your servants. And I love that story because it's really not about the prodigal son. That story is about the father. Because when he saw him afar off coming home, what did he do? He ran. He ran to the son. And he put his cloak on him. He put his ring on him. And he put shoes on his feet. And he says, oh, my son, which was lost, has come. He's come home. Regardless of what he had done. It shows us the grace of God and of the Father and how much he loves us and how much he cares for us and all that he's done for us. It's all about Jesus, my friends. It's all about Christ.
We're not under law. Any of it. We're under the law of grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And those who are genuinely born again walk in it. There is therefore, Romans 8, 1, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not according to the flesh, which is the law, but according to the Spirit, which is by faith. It's all by faith. Martin Luther was a great man. God used him in a mighty way. So was John Calvin. So was Augustine. So were, so many of these guys were great men, but not everything they believed was accurate, you see. We're told in the Gospel of Daniel, or not Gospel, but in the, the book of Daniel, that in the last days knowledge shall increase. Well, it doesn't mean just secular knowledge. You know, we've had the Holy Spirit with us now for 2,000 years, poured out freely from the day of Pentecost. Have we not learned anything more about God in 500 years? <laughs> I think we have. I think we should. But you know what? You look at the way the church is today, and I wonder about that. Because so many people have turned their back on the Word of God, and they've just went the way of Balaam, and they just now embrace anything. But it's not the way it was meant to be. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 17, he says, Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. So my life that I now live in the Spirit I, it causes me to desire the things of God. You know, he even tells me in, in 1 John, desire those things which are above, not the things of the earth. And I do, because of Jesus, because of his spirit. So the law, Paul said, was merely a schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. The law can only show me how far I have failed to be what God required me to be. But once again, my friends, the life of the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, is what gives us the ability to live the life that God has desired for us. Look at verse 25. He says, but after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. So you're no longer under the law, he said. So once Jesus came, there's no longer a need for the schoolmaster. Christ is the end of the law to those that believe. Romans chapter uh, 10, verse 4. So you have to keep it in mind that when Paul said it is the end of the law to those that believe, he was talking about the end of the law in a sense that my trying to use it as a basis for relationship with God can't happen. Now that Jesus has come, mankind can no longer base any type of relationship with God on law. It's solely based on the faith of Jesus Christ. Verse 26, he says, For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be in Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Hmm. Jesus has become the moderator between God and man. All men now must be made to relate to God on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. You know, that's exclusive. Yes, it is. Jesus is the one that said it. It's either true or it's a lie. I'm telling you, it's true. You know, the fact is, it is exclusive. He's the only way. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, he says, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find help in the time of need. Does it matter? 
or it doesn't matter, I should say, who you are or what your background is, rich, poor, a somebody, a nobody, whatever the case may be, we can come boldly unto the throne of grace, and I'm thankful for that. We don't need any mediator. Look at uh, Galatians 4, verse 1. He says, now I say that the heir has, as long as he's a child, differs nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all but is under tutors and governors until the appointed time of the Father. Now, Paul begins to give us this illustration, and he gave us one of a child who is an heir. So to put it in modern-day vernacular, let's uh, uh, think, of the, think of a child. Of, I think Bill Gates. We all know who Bill Gates is, right? Multi-billionaire, second richest man in the world. As long as his son is a child... He's not allowed to write checks. He couldn't write one for $100. He certainly couldn't write one for $100 million or a $1 billion, even though eventually in the future he will be able to do that. But at the moment, he's kept under tutors, governors, if you will, is what they call them, who are there to simply nurture these guys up so that at some time they'll be able to take over this multi-billion dollar empire that their fathers have created. So neither them or, or, or any other kid of that same sort is able to do anything except be there in the house. They differ nothing from a servant at that moment, but eventually they will. So as a believer in Christ Jesus, we also are joint heirs with Christ, the Bible says, and are in a state of development, if you will, a maturing process. There will be a time appointed by the Father when we will be able to enter into that inheritance, but for the time being, we're being trained on how to handle it. So even so we, verse 3, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons, and because you were sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Oh, man, that's some pretty powerful stuff. You know, the fact is, is we're heirs with Jesus Christ. Joint heirs, the Bible tells us very clearly. But he says that God has sent forth his son. And if you take a note, you ought to underline that. Because that is the difference. Once we have come to Christ in grace alone, through faith alone, God empowers us by the Holy Spirit. And because of that, we are able to cry, Abba, Father. It is a son relationship now. He says, you're no more servants, but you're sons. Or if you're women, you're daughters. So, but it's a great relationship. Look at verse 8. He says, how be it? When you knew not God, you did service unto them which by nature are no gods. But now, after that you are no, have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn you again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto you desire to be in bondage? So Paul says when you knew not God, you still did service to them which by nature are not gods. That is, there are people who are of all kinds of religious backgrounds who serve all kinds of things that are not God's. 
I couldn't name all the pagan religions that there are. You look at Hinduism and all the gods and demigods, and they, they've got a god for everything. They've got a god of spigots and, you know, you name it, and, and they, they have God for it. Even within the body of Christ, there's all kinds of churches who have ministers, and they do all kinds of rituals and things that they go through in order to try to have some sort of a higher relationship with God built upon liturgy. Not picking on anybody, but I, I, I was watching one Christmas Eve service where they came out and they're swinging the censers, you see, like the Jews used to in the temple. And the smoke's flying and they're, come here, holy Mary. You know, and it sounds really cool, I have to admit, if you like religiosity, you know. But this is what Paul calls weak and beggarly things. Paul said, after you have known God, or rather that you are known of God, and you've heard me say it a million times, it's a very small thing that you know God. It's more important that he knows you. Why would you go back to the weak and beggarly things Paul's asking these guys? These ritualistic stunts, if you will, they're really bringing you again into bondage. They're just simply giving you some other ritual or something other that you need to be doing in order to make you feel more fuller, closer to God. Most of the practices of the holy days. And I challenge you, whether you're sitting here or listening by radio, open up a Britannica and research the origins of most Christian holidays. And you're going to find that a lot of them are pagan. They have no basis in Christian history. Lent is one of them. I'm sure somebody's turning their radio off right now because they don't want to hear this stuff. But the fact is, look it up in Britannica. You know, this is common knowledge, but most Christians don't know that because they don't study. You know, Paul says it's weak and beggarly things. Look, he's, look at verse 10. He says, you observe days and months and times and years. And that's exactly what happens. We start establishing particular days that we're going to do particular things in particular ways. And Paul's going, no, no, no. All you're doing is doing what the Jews have always done. Last Hanukkah service I ever went to. And we're getting close to the end, so stick with me. I remember going to it. And I won't name names, but it was a relative of mine. Very close one. And I loved his house because every time we go there for Christmas, it's always lit up in blue and white. He's a Christian, but he's very Jewish. And it's all blue and white, and everything's blue and white. Why? Because that's the colors of Israel. And I went in there, and I love my sister-in-law, who's got no Jewish blood in her. <laughs> There's a whole other word for that. I won't get into it. And I remember sitting on the steps, and I'm watching the ritual, because we had the lighting of the candles, you see. And she put on her veil. The lights were lowered, and the candles were being lit, and the smoke was ascending, and the prayers... Her Hebrew is better than mine. And she's singing and waving because that's what they do during it. It's a beautiful ceremony. But I remember the Lord speaking to my heart. And he said, Doug, I have delivered you from this. This is religion. I want a relationship. And I never did it again. Listen, can you do those things? Yes, you can. But when you elevate it 
to a have to. Then it becomes religion. Then it becomes ritual. Then it becomes liturgy. Christ is nothing about that. Paul was about nothing about that. Liturgy has always been around, gang. Read church history. And most of it's not good. Most of it comes. There's a book out there. I challenge you to get it. Uh, we can't get it in our bookstore because they don't carry it, but it's a great book. It's called uh, Two Babylons by Alexander Hislop. Great book. Uh, read it. It's very interesting, very informative. But it shows you, once again, this Babylon mystery religion, how it is incorporated into Christendom. It's been around for long, many, many years. But Paul says, you observe days and months. And, and look what he says in verse 11. I'm afraid of you. Actually, in the Greek, what he's saying is, I'm afraid for you. Lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. Brethren, I beseech you, be as I am. For I am as you are. You've not injured me at all. Every Christian ought to be able to say that to somebody. I'm sure that there's people who would read Paul saying, be as I am, as an arrogant statement. No, it's not. Listen, if you know Jesus Christ, Paul says, brethren, do as I do, and the God of peace shall be with you. All he's simply saying is, listen, I live the gospel. I'm resting in Christ. Be as I am. Do what I'm doing. He was afraid for these guys. Why? Because as we're going to see, read ahead, gang, as we're going to see, he points out to these guys that they had a relationship based in grace once. Remember the beginning of chapter 3? Oh, foolish Galatians, who have bewitched you that you should now not obey the truth? Who Jesus Christ was evidently crucified among you. This only would I know. How received you the Spirit? By the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? It's by the faith of Christ. Everything we do. Paul tells him here, he says, I'm afraid for you. And I have to admit, I can relate to that. I am deathly fearful for some Christians today because they have mixed and mingled the gospel of Jesus Christ with works. And when you do that, what you're saying, and I realize they don't say it out loud, but in works, what they're saying is that what Jesus did in his life, in his crucifixion, his resurrection, was not good enough. I've got to add to it. I've got to do something. I've got to have my fingers in it. Well, God won't have any of that. He will not be a debtor to any man. The Bible tells us this clearly. But because of his great love for you, he has done all for you. All you have to do is rest. He's even given us pictures of it in the Pentateuch, and we look forward. Look at, the, look at the, the issue of the law of the Sabbath. God says, you will do no servile work on the Sabbath. And if you do, go read it. The consequences aren't good. Why? I mean, think about your employer telling you, you're going to take a day off. And when you're home, you will do nothing. You're going to rest. And if you don't, not only is it going to cost you your job, it could cost you your life. Now that sounds kind of harsh. Well, who are you to tell me what to do on my day off? Well, let me tell you. God was looking ahead at his son who was crucified from the foundation of the earth. 
One day his disciples were walking through the field. And because they were hungry and it was the Sabbath, because the Jewish rabbis, you see, they had misinterpreted what the Sabbath was about. They thought man was made for the Sabbath. And so they had written all kinds of laws, which they still adhere to to this day. Even in Israel, they have Sabbath elevators, my friends. Where if you walk into an elevator, because you cannot, because you, if you push a button, see, that's work. So the elevators literally stop up and down on every floor. It's the way it is. But Jesus' disciples were walking through the fields and they were hungry. And it was the Sabbath. And so they were taking the corn wheats and they were rubbing them in their hands and they were eating the, the corn, you know, the, the berries off of the wheat. And of course the Pharisees saw them and said, these men ought to be rebuked. It's the Sabbath. Jesus said, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. He is our Sabbath. He is our rest. And he did everything for us. God will not permit us, gang, to infringe on that in any way, shape, or form. Even when they were building their altars in the wilderness, God said, you will build the altar of stone. No hammers, no chisels. You will use whatever st stones you find. Why? Because those were the stones that God made. And he wanted his altar to be none touched by human hand other than obeying what he told you to do. It's all Jesus, man. It's all God. Paul said, I'm afraid for you lest I have bestowed labor in vain. I, I get that. I've seen it in my own ministry for years. You preach grace and you teach grace and, you, and then years later you find out that some of them have went back to the weak and beggarly things of the world and you go, Lord, why would you do that? Why? You started off so well and now you want to be in bondage again to what? And why? It's becoming more common, more common than you think. Brethren, he says in verse 12, I beseech you, be as I am, for I am as you are. We're just men, he says, but we're walking by grace. You haven't injured me. And he wasn't trying to injure them, but he was afraid for them. Paul loved them. He simply was trying to get them to embrace the truth. Sometimes the truth can be painful, my friends. But Paul told them here to be as I am. He wasn't trying to hurt them, nor was he being hurt by them. But he was afraid that their actions would eventually hurt themselves. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And Lord, we are so thankful for all that Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. And Lord, not because we deserve any of it, not because we merit any of it, but Lord, because you love us. And I'm so thankful for that, Lord. Because I know me. And I know how unloving I am. But Lord, I am so thankful that you just lavish your love and grace and mercy upon my life. I thank you for the blessing of Abraham. I thank you that we are one of his children by faith in Christ. Lord, I pray for those listening that if they don't know you, 
or more accurately if you don't know them. Lord, I pray that you would give them the faith of Jesus Christ, that their eyes would be open to their need for you. And Lord, Father, that they would simply repent, change their mind about who Jesus is and believe the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.